Before we begin, we wanted to let you know about some of the ways you can support Accentricity. To raise funds for the podcast running costs, we've asked the incredible artist Kat Ingle to design our first Accentricity t-shirts. If you'd like to get one for yourself, you can find a link in the episode description or you can go to the Accentricity website and find the merch page. You can also find a link in the episode description to our Patreon and Steady subscription pages where you can pledge a small monthly donation. Or you can give a one-off donation via the Support the Podcast page on the website. Thanks to our current supporters and past donations, we've been able to run the Move-In project without any additional funding and at no cost to the participants. We'd like to keep doing things like this in the future, and your support will help us to do so. This is Accentricity Series 2, The Moving Project. Stories about migration, language and identity from around the world. Over the past year, we've been working with a group of people, teaching them to podcast and helping them to tell stories about the experience of moving from one place to another. This is Charles and Alejandra's story. Charles is from America and has spent time living in France. But he decided that for his project, Instead of telling his own story, he tells someone else's. He interviewed his aunt, Alejandra, who was born in Chile but moved to America and has now been there for almost 30 years. First, you'll hear Charles's 10-minute audio piece, which is about Alejandra's relationship with her Chilean identity and her Chilean Spanish. When you've been away from a place for so long, it can be hard to maintain a connection to that place. Alejandra talks about how it feels to fight for that connection, why it matters to her, and the role played by language. After Charles's piece, you'll hear a conversation we had shortly after he'd completed it. We talk about life in the pandemic, learning to podcast, and the challenges and rewards of telling someone else's story. But first, here's Charles's audio piece. Pololo yeah. o polola, <laughs> eh, pololear, of course. You know, I don't even know if that, that, that is being used right now. Meet Alejandra Cole, a Spanish teacher from Santiago, Chile, who has lived in the United States for 28 years. In addition to being a Spanish teacher, she's also a member of my family, the sort of aunt where if you asked how we're related, it would take a lot of diagramming and explaining. So let's just say aunt in the most nebulous of ways for now. We sat down to talk about her experiences navigating language in diaspora. As I was thinking about this interview earlier, um, I started, yeah, that normally in August, which is the time that I, the day, the month that I arrived, I usually have a mini internal private celebration or commemoration of the day. Um, so it was about the 14th of August. So yes, by now I have been living in the U.S. longer than what I did my years in Chile. Chilean Spanish, like any regional dialect, is marked by a unique array of slang. Al tiro. Al tiro means right now, but not literally. O sea, 
right now, literally. But it could be, see, I'll tell you, if I tell my daughters, hey, can you take the trash out? Yeah, I'll tiro. But it could be, it could be right away, or it could be half an hour, <laughs> it could be later. And that would be very Chilean too. But the al tiro means almost like just acknowledging that you said something, that you were asked something. <laughs> or voy al tiro, and it's 5, 10, 15 minutes later. So al tiro, yes. If you say al tiro, you're al Chilean. If you say pololo, polola, pololear, you're a Chilean. The essential function of slang is to communicate identity, belonging, belonging to a racial, ethnic, regional, or social class group. But slang is not a static entity resistant to change. It's a thing that happens, that lives, breathes, changes. It's deeply tied to the places where it comes from, the people who create it, and the time in which it is most relevant. Quilata. 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 What a bummer. Quilata. <laughs> lata is lata is a piece of metal. That's also lata. Like a una lata, like a can, soda can made of lata. That would be lata. Ah, quilata. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, well, we used to say quechoro. But that's the other thing. I've been here 28 years. And my slang is a little bit outdated. A lot can happen in three decades, especially in Chile. Since the early 1990s, Chile has experienced a transition to democracy, rapid economic growth, and a shift from being a country people immigrate from to a country people immigrate to. Chilean society has been undergoing particularly dramatic changes in recent years, with mass protests against neoliberal economic policies culminating in a plebiscite at the end of last year in which an overwhelming majority of Chileans voted to rewrite the constitution from scratch. In a place that changes so rapidly, time and distance can make holding on to a particular identity incredibly challenging. I want you to know how Alejandra sees her Chileanness after all that has happened. I do feel yeah, I do feel Chilean. Um well, there's so many things that have happened that I haven't lived lately there. And I think that is one thing that separates me emotionally from people because we haven't lived the same things. And maybe because I see certain things from another perspective or I don't know too many details to feel the way they feel. Despite these challenges, though, Alejandra maintains a through line to a linguistic identity, allowing it to evolve in diaspora as something that's dynamic and fluid. Whenever they, they hear, my daughters hear me talking to my sisters, my sister or my friends in Chile, they said, Mama, you're so Chilean. <laughs> when you speak with them and words that don't come uh, most of the time here in, in at home or at school, come out so easily. So it's very easy when you are surrounded by that um, group or to speak it that way. Sometimes though that fluidity isn't entirely conscious. I, when I was working in Washington DC, most of my colleagues were from Central America. So when I went back to Chile, they told me, they, they, they said to me, ah, you're speaking, you have a Central American accent, but it's not that I chose to, but probably um, unconsciously, 
I was imitating certain intonations or certain words that are were not pronounced the way we usually do in Chile. It is worth pointing out here that as Chileans in the United States, Alejandra and her daughter speak a minority dialect of a minority language. While they are in regular contact with other speakers of Spanish, these are speakers of other varieties of Spanish. I would also like to point out that Alejandra is using the term Central American to include speakers of Caribbean varieties of Spanish, such as Cubans, Dominicans, and Puerto Ricans. Today, Alejandra works as a Spanish teacher, primarily with elementary school students. She's been recently speaking with her students about the differences between her Spanish and the Spanishes they speak at home. And that brought up other conversation about words that I use in my class that they don't understand or they don't use normally at home. So they said, yes, she speaks Spanish, but it's not the Spanish we speak at home. So that was really interesting. That also was a very good opportunity to speak about um, language, that even though we all speak Spanish, we are not all using the same words to name certain things. As a mother, it was important to Alejandra that her children have access to Chilean Spanish as a way to be connected to her family, heritage, and traditions. One of the things that made this possible is it was for us to visit Chile every year. Um, I really, they, they really like the culture because we were very um, lucky to be able to take them there and for them go to, to go to school for a few weeks, for about seven years during the summer here. And they really like the culture. They have friends. They, they still are in contact with them and they have their cousins, of course. And so whenever you ask them, they say that they are Hispanics and they are, of course, they are Chileans. I like for them to say they are half and half because, of course, they have a lot of this culture too and is their country. Alejandra recognizes that Chile and being Chilean mean different things to her and her children. Um, of course, I go there and I'm Chilean looking for the, the food, the typical food, the, um, the food, the drinks, the smells, um, the places, the noises that I was used to. Um, and if they... Yeah, that would be mostly um, my my connection to Chile. But yes, I do feel Chilean. But then I know that I I think I think being married here um, and having two daughters that. Who knows if they will always ever, I mean, they will ever go and live there. It's like I have one foot here and one foot there. Right. So you have a little bit of both. Maintaining a connection to Chile is about maintaining a connection to those still living there. When her daughters speak Chilean Spanish, they are speaking the language of Alejandra's family. I thought it was <clears throat> going to be part of their identity and also to... A, enable their communication to all my family. 
because nobody lives here. Everybody's in Chile. So if they wanted to be uh, connected to their grandparents, cousins, aunts, uncles, and everybody else, they had to speak the language. They can have profound conversations with everybody there. They can also know their mother in a way they wouldn't if their relationship was being filtered through Alejandra's second language. And when I speak Spanish to them, I don't think twice that they are not going to understand what I'm saying. Any topic, anything, really. There's a certain poignancy in reaching the anniversary that Alejandra reached this year, where she's now spent longer outside of Chile than she ever spent there. It's the point at which the balance has officially shifted, and it was really significant for me to get to speak with her at that juncture in her life. While she's had the good fortune to be able to maintain a strong link to both countries, which made of her duality something enriching, it's a hybridity that is essentially conceived out of longing, a longing for a distant other that perhaps seems always just out of reach, or one that shifts just quickly enough that you can't keep up, like clutching onto a fistful of sand beneath the waves. Alejandra's story so perfectly illustrates the fact that the experience of migration is so much more vast than knowing this word or that word, of saying boligrafo to your students, lapis de pasta to your daughters, and ballpoint pen to your husband. It's an experience of trying and sometimes not succeeding to bridge gaps between people and spaces and bridge the gaps within oneself that are born out of contact with those people and those spaces. With her daughters, she has empowered them to forge their own duality, to plant their own feet in each country. But she knows their hybrid identity is not the same as hers. And as they enter adulthood, the balance between the two places, cultures, languages, and histories will continue to shift and oscillate for them as well as for her. So I guess back in August, you found out about the Moving Project and signed up to take part. Um, what was it that made you want to try out podcasting? Yeah, um, so it was it was actually, I think it was Helen Zaltzman that retweeted it or, or tweeted about it. And um, I've just been like a longtime fan of, of her mm, work. I think me she's too. really, really good at, at this. Um it's like, it's like one of those things that it's it's a media that I consume a lot of, but I've never tried. And um, I think kind of like a a philosophy that ended up emerging out of the pandemic was like a desire to try things that I was going to be bad at. Um, and um, and so I think that was <clears throat> that was kind of like the driving force of it, and like the topic of of the accentricity podcast like appealed to me like i'm interested in migration and language and identities associated with you know place and and language cool. so it was that it was like the the desire to do something that i didn't think i would be good at mm. and i suppose yeah obviously the pandemic has been awful in seven hundred thousand ways um but it has definitely got me trying out new things that I might not otherwise have tried just out of yeah I guess <laughs> partly boredom um I guess from our point of view running the moving project was a bit of that a bit of the desire to try something new 
um, mm. and to try and work a little bit differently. And under normal circumstances, I guess we would have been out meeting people and talking to people face to face. So we wanted to find ways of hearing people's stories and having voices other than mine on the podcast. And this seemed like <laughs> a good way to do it. Um, and yeah, we've been able to work with people from all over the world, which has been really cool. So you are in America. Yeah. Whereabouts are you again? I live in North Carolina. North um, Carolina. In a city called Asheville, which is in mm. the west part in the mountains. Yeah, so it's just, it's crazy to think that you're so far away from us. <laughs> um, and because of the pandemic, you might as well be just down the road. <laughs> because right. We yeah. would be communicating I, the same way. <laughs> Yeah, and I think like in general, like from the pandemic, it's like my world feels so much smaller, but also so much bigger at the same time. Yeah, know? yeah, totally. Like I was saying this to to somebody else I was chatting to the other day, but the yeah, it's like space, geographical space has completely both collapsed and expanded, so that right. <laughs> so that down the road could be a thousand miles away, and a thousand miles away could be down the road. Right, <laughs> it's a really strange yeah. thing. I think. Yeah. Um, I wondered about like, so had you done anything like this before? Was this completely new to you? So you'd done some writing before, right? Yeah, and and I guess that's that was like the entry point. Um, I did an internship at um. France Culture, which is like the national public radio in in France, um, and we <clears throat> we produced a podcast. Um, well, we produced like a radio documentary that then was a podcast, and um, but I was like entirely on the like writing research side of things. Um, I had never like touched audio at all, um, and um, so yeah, like all of that was like completely new. So editing audio, recording things. Um, and I was just talking to someone about this yesterday, how like, like it was, it was interesting how different it was. Like when you're, you know, when you're editing a document, it's like vertical, everything is oriented vertically, but like audio editing is horizontal. And I didn't expect that to be a thing that was a challenge, you know, <laughs> like it was sort of like reorienting, like, how I conceive of like content in space mm. was really tricky. And um, particularly doing the final project, it was like, you know, when you have a long document, it, you know, and you're putting things in different places and moving around inside the document, it, it has a, a feel to it that I'm comfortable with, but then suddenly just having everything be horizontal, like really threw me off somehow. I totally know um, what you mean. It's a strange yeah, one, but I, I get you. Yeah, I that. <laughs> mm. yeah. And uh, I think when you first start editing, everything's so slow and cumbersome and you're just not used to it. And once you start to get to a place where you can, it, it feels a bit more like writing or, you know, like it feels as natural as writing a document. Um, so I guess, yeah, because I think when you first spoke to us about what you were going to make, you were sort of toying with different ideas for migration stories that you could tell and whether it was going to be part of your own story and you settled on telling someone else's story um so why did you choose to tell the particular story that you chose I guess um you know another sort of pandemic project has been improving my Spanish and um 
And so we have these like sort of distant relatives that are from Chile and um, in the theme of like the world getting smaller and getting bigger at the same time, it's like, uh, I think we ended up becoming closer, me and the subject Alejandra uh, became closer and, um, and that ran parallel with like, just like another sort of rabbit hole universe of interest that were going on, um, particularly related to sort of South America in the 1970s, you know, these like that series of, of uh, military dictator- dictatorships um, throughout the region, um, particularly Chile, you know, that uh, had sort of one of the most brutal experiences with that. So um, that was like the grain of interest was sort of like, what's the deal with Chile? You know, why is it, why does it always seem to be like, the other one you know like it always sort of seems apart from from the rest of the region somehow um and uh and and the thing that interested me about her story in coming to the united states is that it was actually kind of completely unrelated to the dictatorship you know uh, um like obviously those narratives of people that that left because of pinochet are are interesting and, and i'm interested in looking into those <clears throat> but hers was just sort of like, like completely divorced from it, you know. And so she had this sort of different, very different perspective of, of Chilean society, and, um, and that you know she, I mean, as she mentions in the interview, it's like she's missed out on the last thirty years of Chilean history, um, which have sort of become the most significant <laughs> um, in like what has made Chile what it is today. Um, so yeah, that interested me, the thing of like the distance and closeness that she's always experiencing, um, that there are these like little triggers she mentions that make her feel very close to Chile. And then when she steps back and looks at the big picture, she's like very far away. What was it like telling someone else's story compared to telling your own? Like what were... What were the dynamics like with her being your aunt? Like, were you quite close before you did this project with her? Or was she someone a bit more distant from you? Um, <clears throat> yeah, we weren't, like, particularly close. And actually, I think that doing this, like, kind of opened the door to, like, a lot of, a lot more interaction that I, I've, I've enjoyed. Um, like, were these conversations you'd had with her before? Or was this the first time you'd asked about these kind of things? I, I we had talked before about um the issue of particularly the issue of um being a teacher of Spanish and raising like Chilean children in America. Um that you know, it was sort of like a like funny anecdote of like she talks this way at school and this way at home. But it was something that I wanted to like go deeper into of like what is that what does it actually feel like to be sort of you know, to have these two Spanishes that you are, like, assigning different roles, you know. Um, and I think that her explanation of it was really interesting that, like, um, you know, in the classroom, she's not trying to create a sort of neutral Spanish or making sort of moral claims about Spanish or, or judgment calls about Spanish, um, but is instead, like, trying to give this, like, most versatile Spanish to her students and that the the function of language at home is just different you know the purpose of her children speaking Spanish for her is so that they know her family and that they know her so um 
that was that was eye-opening because I sort of I had gone in with the assumption of like oh there's like you know Spanish teachers have this assumption of like there's good Spanish and there's bad Spanish but it wasn't at all how she was conceiving of it um and like the openness she had with her students who many of them are, are Mexican and Cuban and Dominican um kind of dealing with their Spanish that they speak at home and how to like you know, deal with that kind of friction uh, where there's a possibility of like judgments, um, you know. So you mentioned like that you kind of had some assumptions to begin with that turned out not to be what came out of the interview. So when you started making your episode and before you did the interview, did you know what you were going to be saying? Like how, how much did the story end up being changed by your aunt when you did the interview? I think I think it kind of was like completely changed you know like <laughs> I think in my plan I had written just like you know I'd written like a beginning a middle and an end and then you know I sort of presented her with the beginning and then she changed the middle and then it was like well what <laughs> um but it was good because it, it was it ended up being more like authentic than this thing that I had you know contrived but um yeah I think I had a ton of assumptions about um particularly about sort of like assumptions that non-Chileans make about Chileans um, and that I, I kind of anticipated there being more, I don't know, conflict, you know, um, that I, I thought it was, I thought it was particularly interesting the way that she talked about the friends that she has that are, um, you know, she has this group of friends that are mostly, I think she said they were Argentinian and Ecuadorian and Cuban and Dominican. Um, and that, um, you know, Argentina and Ecuador are places where people have lots of opinions about Chile. Um, and so she was, it was interesting to see that kind of in that space of Jacksonville, Florida, a lot of that baggage was put aside, you know, those sort of, uh, it's put aside, but still like present, you know, like she says that with her Bolivian friends, like they do talk about the border, <laughs> um, you know, this like really old conflict about you know, Chile made Bolivia landlocked and, um, but that it's, I don't know. And I, I, I was sort of surprised by how surprising I found that. Were you at any time, did you ever feel the temptation to ignore the bits that didn't line up with what you were expecting? Because <laughs> I, yeah. I have felt this in interviews before where I will, I'll feel like I understand something and then the interviewee will throw in something that I don't understand at all and it doesn't and it seems to contradict what they've already said and it doesn't line up with what I thought I knew and what I thought I was learning and I, d I don't understand like I have felt that temptation before to be like oh maybe they didn't mean that maybe I'll just leave that out and like I, I really try to lean into you know to lean into the the difficult bits and to lean into the bits that I don't understand but um mm. But yeah, did you ever feel that kind of conflict when you were making it? Yeah, and like the, I mean, the temptation is so much greater when like, you know, our interview was about an hour um, <clears throat> and then it had to be condensed into 15 minutes and structured, you know. Um, and she said lots of things that were super interesting that didn't make it in because, you know, they didn't really fit the final narrative, you know, like... Um, near the end, we ended up having this really interesting talk about like 
race in Chile today, you know, and how like the sort of demographic, uh, like the demographics of Chile are, are changing, particularly as Chile goes from being like a net emigration country into like a net immigration country. Um, and, and I think particularly like her, she was very open about like, she was very open about not knowing things and very open about like um, being surprised by things and very open about like the, the ways that our talk were taking her to new places, you know? And so at the end, you know, there was, she had this sort of very interesting statement about how, you know, now when she goes back to Chile, she's curious to like pay more attention to, um, you know, like the intersections of class, race, migration status in the way people talk um, that she had been conscious of, but that our talk made her more conscious of. And, um, and that's something that I really like appreciated about, about her as, as an interview subject that she was so forthcoming about, you know, she knows what she knows and she doesn't know what she doesn't know. Um, and her openness to like look more into things and, and even change things. Like she mentioned that she was, that after our interview, she wanted to, it gave her an idea for like a new lesson plan in her classroom of how to like incorporate more um, the sort of Mexicanisms and Cubanisms that are in the classroom and sort of make her students feel more seen and valued for their, their own contributions to language. Um, so I think like that element to her personality made her such an ideal subject. Um, and um, and it was also devastating because you're like, at the end, it's like, okay, well, these are the three points I want to hit. And none of those fit in, but they're brilliant, you know? And, uh, and I feel almost like, you know, people should know that <laughs> she's brilliant and insightful. Absolutely. Um, I would definitely listen to a whole series with your aunt. I think she's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. and she's I love, charming. She's yeah. so charming. She's so charming and so interesting. And I love listening to people who are in the process of working things out as they're working things out. Yeah. Like, I just think that's that's kind of a gift in an interviewee, I think, if you get someone who, oh, yeah. you know, they know what they think, but there are things that they haven't made up their mind about yet, and you get to, like, listen to that process. I think that's really cool. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> How do you feel about... Because I kind of me mentioned, like, what, you know, what were the dynamics like? I think... When you're telling someone else's story, there's always this kind of really interesting collaborative. There's a collaborative thing going on, but also you're you're the one who holds the reins. Like you're the one telling the story, and you're the one who ultimately presents it and decides how it's presented, and you're in control. And I wondered, maybe particularly with her being your aunt, but just in general, what that was like. Like, how do you feel about? Has she listened to the piece yet? Um, no, she hasn't. I think that um, she's waiting for the final, oh, final great. edition. Like, is there any yeah. part of you that feels like a little bit nervous about that? Or do you think, like, are you pretty confident that you've told the story the way she would expect it to be told? Or maybe you haven't told it the way she would expect it, but do you know what I mean? Do you think she'll like it? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that, like, I... Um, I mean, I think she comes across really, really great, you know, like, um, but I think that um, that was something that was really important to me in structuring a narrative is that I didn't want to, 
you know, I didn't want to like create a narrative that wasn't true to the one that she had made herself, you know, um, and, uh, and that like the, the tricky, the trickier part, I think was where to put myself, you know, I didn't, that was something I struggled a lot with was the voice in my own writing inside the piece of, um, you know, how present I'm supposed to be, how, how much like this is my own, you know, like where do I put my feet? I don't, I, you know, that, that was something, and I don't know if I really like succeeded in finding something coherent in the end. Um, but that, I mean, so just on that point, it was so much of the final product. I surprised myself in enjoying how much it wasn't what, I like finally desired, you know, there was a, I don't know if this is like an idea that Ira Glass had himself or if it was like advice given to him that he then shared, but he once talked about like in any creative endeavor, there's like the big difference between your taste and your ability. Um, And so there was something sort of pleasing in the end of like listening to the final thing and thinking like, I don't know if I love this <laughs> because it sort of was that it was like, okay, well, like my, my taste is up here. Mm. My ability is down here. And sort of oddly that felt satisfying <laughs> to yeah. be like, okay, well, this is the space to, to make up, you know, that's the, that's the room to move into. Um, and, and it's frustrating, but it's also like much better than I think your taste and ability being on the same level, you know? Mm, um, mm. So there are a lot of things about the final piece that I recognize as like not totally landing or not really hitting the mark. And in that I have that recognition that like someone much, much more talented than I would be able to pull that off. Um, And so if anything, it gave me a much bigger appreciation for this as a creative art form you know like as a as a means of production it's um it's not obvious (laughs) and you know as someone who listens to a lot of podcasts like sometimes you can like trick yourself into thinking like oh well yeah like slap this together boom 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 write an intro done and then when you're actually doing it it's like oh my god how does how does anyone do this you know um knowing enough to be able to see the flaws in your own work (laughs) <laughs> like right. like even I had to listen back to the first episodes of eccentricity recently um because I was I was doing something with I was picking clips for this like online exhibition that it's gonna we're gonna be part of um but I was I was listening back and it wasn't that long ago that I started making it but I was like oh come on Sadie like what are these edits and I think yeah. um I think that's one of the things that's been lovely about the moving project though is that like everybody has come on so much in such a short space of time but yeah like it's incredible between kind of the first assignment and now in terms of like both the technicalities of recording and editing and the kind of storytelling um it's been amazing just watching how fast everyone's come on I think I think learning to podcast is a steep learning curve but that also makes it really exciting um Mm. Yeah, that's been it's been really fun um for me. And 
Yeah, so so I should clarify as well when I'm like, oh, do you think your aunt will like it? I I think she will. <laughs> I, <laughs> I didn't mean to didn't mean to kind of sound like I was implying, um, but I was kind of asking that because I'm making this piece with my mum about her experience, and I do feel like a little bit. I've still got I've still got I'm not finished it yet. I've still got some work to do, but um, even though, you know, I'll be working quite closely with her and. You know, she's my mum, so I feel like we're close enough that maybe I should understand her experience. There's so much that I don't understand, and I am a little bit nervous about playing it to her. And yeah, like, will she, even if she listens and thinks this is a, this is well made, like, will I have kind of got it right and sort of captured? Mm. And and the the question of where you put your own voice who you are in the story is really tricky I think because you kind of end up a lot of the time speaking for someone else in a way even if you're just summarizing something that they said to you um but I think we talked about this before like I think that I think that as an interviewer and an editor there's always going to be so much of you in the piece anyway that you might as well just be honest about your presence in it by putting mm. your own voice in as as a narrator or or an introducer yeah. or whatever form it takes um yeah I've thought about this quite a lot before and I've thought about removing my own voice you know so that it's not all about me but then it kind of is all about me even if I pretend it's not <laughs> I mm. think you know once I'm kind of sure. doing the editing um yeah it's like the the, the myth of objectivity the exactly yeah. <clears throat> yeah yeah you know i'm just like i'm i don't know i think i'm like a very like private person i don't like i don't i don't want to share you know like if, if i were to make a podcast i wouldn't want it to be about me um and the idea of sort of putting things that i create out into the world is is terrifying um because you know what if what i say is wrong what if i say what i say is is stupid you know like um so it was it was i guess useful for like making me just like confront that fear of you know i'm gonna try to say stuff and you know people can react to it however they react um but that that is like deeply terrifying to me so the whole like the whole concept of a podcast is like possibly my greatest fear um and so yeah this is like a a little self-administered therapy i think (laughs) um yeah yeah, I think it feels like you're just putting a piece of your soul out into the whole world sometimes. Putting a piece of your soul on the internet and letting people mm-hmm. tell you what they think of it. Right. <laughs> and right. That can be very, very scary. But um, yeah. what about in terms of your aunt and your your family's experiences with migration? Do you think that do you think that now after making this piece, do you think that you're able to understand the experience that your aunt was describing? Or do you think it's something that's hard to understand if you haven't lived it? Um, <clears throat> I, you know, I think that it, it came up during one assignment and then it led, it sort of became the theme that I wanted to explore the most with her. Um, which was motherhood. Um, and so it's like specifically a, a, a compartment of migration that like I have not experienced and cannot experience um, as like a cis man. Um, but 
I think it was the it was almost like the un understandability, incomprehensibility of it that that was the most interesting of it, you know, like um and and the the attempt to understand, you know, like I don't have children and so I think the most interesting thing for me was that element of having children. Um children mixed up inside the question of migration. Um, and it's always been something that really interested me, that question of like, um, you know, what happens when like you, you know, I think a lot of parents who migrate experience this of like, you know, like an essential part of parenthood is like a realization that your child is a, is a person unto themselves. Um, and that compounded by like, they're foreign <laughs> is always such an interesting thing of like, you know, when, you know, I have friends who have children and a lot of my friends who have children are raising their children in a different place than where they were raised. And I, I think it's always interesting that idea of like, why are my kids German? You know, why are they, how did I get, how did I get these, you know, these French children? Um, where did they come from? Um, is always so interesting to watch people navigate. And so I, I, I wanted to explore that particularly with her, especially because I think that her, whatever approach she took to, you know, bilingual household, having her children be in contact with the culture, like she pulled it off in this kind of exceptionally competent way, you know, that um, her children are very, very like, able to you know like the, the spanish is incredible you know um for people that didn't grow up in a spanish-speaking country like okay yes they have a mother whose native language is spanish they grew up in florida where like spanish is very 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 spoken but it's like it's impressive to, to see them you know they're just so competent to a level that feels kind of rare um in terms of like multi-generational language transmission um so yeah, it was like that that element of motherhood. There's something about motherhood and maternity that sort of always fascinated me. Like, um, it's such a unique relationship that people have. Um, and so exploring that compounded by language and place um, was, was a really great door to more insights for me, I think. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating to me as well. And... You know, my my mum was born in Scotland and still I think the first time I had been to like a Polish class at uni and I tried to speak Polish to her, I could see it in her eyes that she looked at me and she was like, why are you Scottish? How did that happen? <laughs> even though, <laughs> even though she is too, for all intents and purposes. Right. <laughs> she's like, when I tried to speak Polish and spoke it with a Scottish accent, she's like, hmm, not sure how this came about. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's a really fascinating thing and um, yeah I think you've it, it's really interesting that you say like it's almost like the process of trying to understand is the story you know like mm. like it's not that to, to have made a piece about this to made an episode you have to understand it you can the, the process of you working it out can be the story mm. and I really like that.
thanks to Charles for all of his hard work, skill and enthusiasm, and to Alejandra for sharing her story. Thanks as always to the Axe Interest team, John McDermott and Martha Ryan. Thanks to Seb Philp for the music and Aileen Marshall for the transcription. Remember to have a look in the episode description for a link to the merch page and links to our Patreon and Steady pages. Thanks for listening.